We're going to be reading 1 through 35. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel, and as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how you... How he told you, while he was still in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified on the third day, and on a third day rise. And they remembered his words, and returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were, while they were talking and dis- discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him, and he said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who is a prophet, might indeed Mighty indeed in word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rule, rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back, saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going, He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at at table with them, he took the bread, and blessed and broke it, and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road? While he opened to us the scriptures, and they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found and they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, "The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon." Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. In a good news that. Death is dead, love is won, Christ is conquered. 
Those are wonderful words. This morning, we're going to be looking starting in verse 13, chapter 24 of Luke. And we're introduced in the text to two of them. Two of them. Verse 18 gives us the name of one, Cleopas. Two of them led to believe two disciples, two followers of Jesus, traveling partners on this particular occasion. And I believe the text would call us to ask the question, what occasion is this? Anything significant about the occasion of their journey? Well, the text informs us that these two were traveling that same day, that same day. Context would then tell us that this journey is taking place on Sunday. Anything significant about this particular Sunday recorded in the scriptures? Well, we read this morning Luke 24, 1 through 12. And it would tell us there that this is the day that Jesus is raised from the dead. This is the Sunday that's being described in our text. That particular Sunday. This was the Sunday that these two men traveled out, headed out of Jerusalem. The text tells us that they were traveling to Emmaus. Emmaus, a village some seven miles northwest on the map of Jerusalem. As they walked along, what did they do? Well, the text tells us that they talked together of all these things which had happened. You see, verses 13 and 14, what it does in many ways is it it prepares us for the encounter. It prepares us for what is about to happen. It sets the stage for all that's going to occur. Speaking of this journey, in particular the journey from Jerusalem to Emmaus. All these things that had happened. You know, church, there have been many things that have happened over the past week in Jerusalem as we read the text. In fact, I would go so far as to say there have been many things that have happened over the last two and a half, three years since Jesus came on the scene and started preaching and teaching, ministering. From what's known as the triumphal entry, where the crowds, remember the crowds were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who has come in the name of the Lord. To just a few days later, the cheers turned into chants of crucify him, crucify him. You see, the public opinion of Jesus, while highly influenced by the religious leaders of the day, turned drastically, and the events of this particular Passover had been disastrous. And I ask, or had they been disastrous? You see, to many who were following Jesus, they seemed disastrous. They seemed terrible. They seemed awful. It seemed like the end of the road. These two men journeyed on the road to Emmaus, recounting, And debating, going back and forth, conversing about the events that had happened. To this point in the text, we know that these two men are on a journey. Their destination is Emmaus, 
some seven miles away. The day is Sunday, Resurrection Sunday. And the conversation is centered on all that's happened recently in Jerusalem. I want you to see what's going on. Part two of the text. We enter into the picture a stranger. The stranger. Verses 15 and 16. We see in 15, so it was while they conversed and reasoned that Jesus himself, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. You know, it's interesting that Luke puts the emphatic here. He didn't just say Jesus drew near. Jesus himself. This is Jesus himself. Why is that so important? Because Jesus himself had been dead. He had been buried. Who is it that's drawing near to these two men as they walk along the road? It's Jesus himself. He went with them. Verse 16, key verse. But their eyes were restrained so that they did not know him. So we enter into the picture here in this journey, a stranger. And I say a stranger, but truly he's no stranger to many of you here today. The text identifies the stranger, Jesus himself. But as these two men are traveling to Emmaus, conversing and reasoning among themselves, the text says that Jesus himself drew near and he went with them. So the third party here is not a stranger to the reader. We get inside a view, look at who this third party is. But the thought occurred to me that perhaps there are some here today that this third party who joins the two men on the road, perhaps this third party is a stranger to some of you here today. For those of you that have been with us, you know that we've been talking about Jesus from the Sermon on the Mount of late. And you know and you realize and you've come to see, Lord willing, that there is much more than simply saying something. Didn't we say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do this? Didn't we do this? Didn't we do this? And Jesus says, depart from me, I never knew you. There was no relationship. And he goes on and says, whoever hears my word and does them, obeys them, puts them into practice. I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on a rock. I believe there's a wonderful segue from the end of the Sermon on the Mount into what we're reading here. The text leads us to believe that the men were kept from knowing him at this time. Why why does Jesus initially remain a stranger to them? I do believe the text will make it very clear. but, But let me ask this question. Has Jesus ever appeared to be a stranger to you? You're on a journey right now. Some of you are traveling the road of sickness Some of you are on traveling this road of of pain and discouragement and bitterness and loss, uncertainty. Many of you here are traveling down one of these roads right now. Along the road, have you felt as though Jesus was a stranger to you in your situation? 
If so, why? What is it about your situation that makes you think Jesus is operating as a stranger? Is it possible that because of your situation, you think him to be a stranger? Keep looking at the text. Verses 17 through 27, really the meat of the text. The meat of this, bulk of this, 17 through 27. The conversation. The conversation. What kind of conversation is this? It's interesting, as as though he might actually be a genuine stranger, in the dark about what these two men are talking about. Jesus, in verse 17, asks a question. Now, we've talked about this before. When Jesus asks a question, he asks it not because he doesn't know the answer. He knows all things. He knows the hearts of men. He knows what they're thinking before they even speak it. But here's a question from the stranger. So here's the question. What kind of conversation is this that you have with one another as you walk and are sad? And you know, as you read the response in the text, you get the idea that these two men, they are shocked. They are shocked at the question from the stranger. Any person in Jerusalem would have known. Wasn't it obvious what they were talking about? Well, look at what they say. Are are you the only stranger in Jerusalem? And have you not known the things which happened here during these days? Now, there's an interesting twist here in what these men are saying to Jesus. Because essentially they're saying, where have you been? How could you not know this? And Jesus, while it's not spoken, I I, I read the text and I sometimes wonder and I think to myself, he was probably thinking the very same thing in the moment with these guys. What are you doing? In light of these things that have happened, what are you doing? Now, he doesn't verbalize it. He doesn't expose and and they're they're not able to see at this point who this third party stranger is. But it is interesting to look at their response to Jesus. Are you the only stranger? Well, Jesus isn't done. He continues drawing them out as they walk along the way. And he says, what things? Now, this is where it gets really, really good. Because right here is where the two men, they open the door. They open the door, not only for the stranger that's traveling along the road with them, but also for you, the reader. The door is open. The door is open that you might understand a bit more about their journey, that you might see the events that have happened in recent days, and that you might even see the crushed hopes of men. Their hearts lay bare before this stranger. I mean, if you take 19 through 24, the two men are going to give details to the stranger about the events that have happened over the past several days. But they also provide additional details about the men themselves, about why they're on the road to Emmaus. 
first of all, the subject matter of the things that have happened. First thing they say in verse 19. Remember, Jesus says, what things? What's going on? What things? Their first response is, the things concerning Jesus of Nazareth. Come on. The things concerning Jesus. Notice how they describe him. Who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. Now, first of all, was Jesus a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people? Yes, he was. But when thinking about how you might define this Jesus of Nazareth, this is, this is far from being a complete description of who he is. You see, his identity is not wrapped up in simply being a prophet. The information is true, but the information is incomplete. Especially coming from the lips of two followers of Jesus. I mean, if you were to describe, think about it, if you were to describe who this Jesus is to a stranger... What would you say? How would you describe him? Would you say Jesus is a good person? A credible prophet? Great teacher? Would you say perhaps that he is your savior? Would you call him the Lord of your life? And would it be true then to say such a thing? Because it is one thing to say, He is your Lord, He is your Savior. It is another thing entirely to believe and live and operate in obedience to that. What other things have happened? Look at verse 20. And how the chief priests and our rulers delivered Him to be condemned to death and crucified Him. So Jesus says, what other things? What things? And so they tell Him, oh, about Jesus of Nazareth. And... How the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him. So these men speak first of the person. They speak of Jesus. And then they recount what happened to this person. How he was handed over to be condemned to death by means of crucifixion. Death on a cross. Did that actually happen? Yes, it did. These two men are speaking truth, relaying the facts of what happened. And yet, I want you to see this, yet they're missing something right here. ...as it pertains to the death of Jesus. Turn in your Bibles for just a moment... ...to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 2. Verses 23. This is, by the way, this is Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost. And he talks about, he's saying, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. Verse 23, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. The determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. You have taken by lawless hands, have crucified, and put to death, whom God raised up. Having loosed the pains of death. You see what these two men along the road to Emmaus seem to have forgotten, or maybe they never realized it to begin with. Is that the death of Jesus wasn't simply some 
group of people that were more powerful and took him away and tortured him and, and then put him on the cross. No, because what we understand from the scriptures is that Christ was delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. This was God's plan. Praise the Lord. It was God's plan. This wasn't some, something that man was in charge of. In fact, you read John chapter 10. Jesus says that God had given him authority to lay down his life to take it up again. If you read the gospel accounts, at the end of all the gospel accounts, before Jesus dies, do you know what it says? He yielded his spirit. He breathed his last. He gave up his spirit. No one took it from him. You see, these men got the fact right. He died on a cross. They seem to be missing the purpose of the cross, though. They seem to be missing the bigger picture of the cross. They fail to acknowledge the divine purpose behind his death. Well, remember the question in the text. Jesus asks, what things? The text takes another turn in verse 21. Oh, I spent a lot of time in verse 21 this week. Verse 21. And it was those first few words. But we were hoping. We're hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. So right now what we have, now they talk about Jesus, who he is, prophet. And then they talk about what he did. He was condemned to death, died on the cross. And now what they're going to do is they're going to add a personal element. Do you see this in the text? They're giving a personal element. But we were hoping. Church, what are you hoping for today? You're here today and each of you are filled with hopes of things to come. Hopes of what you might accomplish. Hopes for what your marriage can be. Hopes for what your children might do for the Lord down the road. Hopes for how you might steward your body in the days ahead. Hopes for a job. Hopes for amended marriage. Hopes for one who is sick to get healthy. Hopes for a wayward child. Hopes for the world that we live in. Hoping for a, a better tomorrow. And for each one of you that may look a little differently what that is. All kinds of hopes are represented in the hearts of men. And as I read through the account from these two men, I was struck by that phrase, but we were hoping. I want you to notice something. Notice that the phrase comes on the heels of Jesus being crucified. Remember they said, how the chief priests and rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we were hoping... Jesus died, but we were hoping. What is the content of your hopes? What are they made of? I was reading this week a supplemental book, a chapter in particular, tied into this idea of hope. 
And the title of the chapter that this gentleman wrote, the title was, Hopeful People Know Which Hopes Matter Most. And he went on, he talked about, basically we have three different kinds of hopes. They're what he called these preference hopes. Preference hopes would be anything that we would want to happen, but cannot be sure that it will. You know, like, oh, I hope, I hope I can get some vanilla ice cream later today. Well, if, you know, that, that kind of hope is something that you, you hope happens. And if it happens, great. But if it doesn't happen, it's not going to be a crash on your day. You're going to continue to function. Okay. But then there are these hopes called vital hopes. And these hopes that promise to bring serious benefits for our very being if they come true. And serious personal loss if they don't. The point is that if you believe that getting or not getting what you hope for is crucial to your very well-being, your hope is a vital hope. And then there's what the author penned, a fallback hope. He says this, when we hope for something that we want more than anything in the world and that something is taken away from us, we need a fallback hope. A fallback hope, listen carefully, it's not a plan B hope to replace the hope we lost. It is a hope that supports, it's a hope that supports all our other living hopes and still survives when those hopes die. How many of you in here have such a fallback hope? Amen. Listen, if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. That's what the word says. But the word a few verses later also says, but now Christ is risen from the dead. You see, the testimony of the scriptures is that Christ is risen. These two men traveling along the road to Emmaus, they're about to find out some glorious news. Their eyes are about to be opened. Right now, though, they're downcast, they're discouraged, they're disappointed. Why? Why? The road to Emmaus, church, we've got to understand something, teaches you something very important about your life. When what you hope for about Jesus, when it comes into conflict with the sure testimony of the scriptures, when you embrace, listen, when you embrace your own set of hopes and you build and construct your life upon those hopes, if that's the extent of the hope that you have, a hope rooted and built on what you think Jesus ought to be doing, a hope rooted in how you think Jesus ought to be working in your life, a hope based upon your ideas when Jesus needs to intervene in your life. What I read in the text, these two men, these two men saw the death of Jesus as defeat. They saw the crucifixion as final. The evidence of that comes shining through as they hit the road for Emmaus. And you know what? I was reminded right here. If you've been to a, a, a ball game at all, sometimes in the fourth quarter, if the home team is losing... Badly. What do the people do? They leave. 
They start to file out to the exits. Because guess what? In their mind, the game is over. Oh, but it's not over. They're still playing. But in their mind, it's over. And so they get up and they walk out. They file out of the arena and go back to their cars to head home. These two men are leaving Jerusalem. To them, it's all over. It's all over. It's resurrection day, and yet they're leaving town. Jesus is dead. He's gone. Game's over. No need to stick around. We were hoping, we were hoping, they said, that he might be the one to redeem Israel. So they walked on. But praise the Lord, Jesus showed up along the way. He showed up. Church, this is instructive. It's important for us to know that the game is not over. It's not over. The world might act as though it's over. Government might want to take this Jesus out of the schools. They might feel like the day is over for a one-man and a one-woman marriage. It's not, because God's already established what it is. You might be in a circumstance right now. It leads you to believe it's all over. Life can't get any better. I'm, I'm a hopeless cause. My life just can't get any better. Is this all there is? Perhaps you have failed to see the object of your hope in a person. You've been so focused on the hopes here on earth, the things yet to accomplish, the things yet to be done, that you've missed your eternal hope, your hope grounded in Jesus. The writer of that chapter I mentioned earlier, he says, do you have one hope that will survive the crash of all your other hopes? Do you know what that hope is? Jesus, right here in Luke 24, is the hope upon which these two men can stand. But listen, on this road to Emmaus, Jesus is calling out to those who have ears to hear. Those who have ears to hear. In the words of the hymn writer, I, I was reminded of the, the hymn. My hope is built on nothing less. Is your hope built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and his righteousness? Is Christ your hope? Is Jesus your anchor, your refuge, strong tower in times of trouble? When everything that you have hoped for doesn't happen quite like you've planned it to, what do you have left? Are you two going to turn? File away, go away, and walk down the road? Call it quits? Is your response going to be like these two men? But we were hoping. Well, Jesus had asked the question, what things? We keep going in the text. Finishing up verse 21. Another thing that they mention here is, indeed, besides all this, today is the third day since these things happened. How, how often did Jesus say that he was about to be handed over, mocked, beaten, killed? Even in the Old Testament scriptures, right? Was it not prophesied that Jesus would be handed over to sinful men to be crucified? And was not the third day brought forth as the day when Jesus would rise from the dead? The third day. These two, you know, as I read the text, and I was asking the family, if you knew that the word said on the third day he was going to be raised, wouldn't you at least 
wait until the end of the third day before you left. I would. At least I would like to think that I would. These men don't. And all the things that they're telling this stranger, compiled evidence, is going to lead to a strong word from Jesus here in short order. They're walking along the road. They know it's the third day. And yet it doesn't register. How often have you responded the same way though? You know, you know what this scripture says. But you live as though it's not true. Is this not reason enough to adhere to the exhortation that's given to us in Hebrews 10, 23 to 25? Let us hold fast. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. Can I read that again? For he who promised is what? Faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Look at verses 22 and 23. Jesus asked the question, what things? They're still telling him things. Yes, and a certain women of our company who arrived at the tomb early astonished us. There's that word astonished. We talked about astonished and amazement. Remember that at the end of the Sermon on the Mount? Matthew tells us in summarizing that they were astonished at his teaching. Is that the point of the Sermon on the Mount that they just might be astonished? I asked the same question right here. They heard the report from the women. They were astonished at what they heard. Did they do anything about what they heard? Doesn't seem like it. They're on the road to Emmaus. When they did not find his body, they came saying that they had also seen, also seen, here's another part of the report, they'd also seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. So these two men are privy to the women who showed up early at the tomb. They heard about the absence of Jesus' body, heard about the angels, heard about what they said to the women, and yet they turned their back. They hit the road. To them, it was all over. Keep reading the text. They're not done. Jesus asked, what things? There's more. And certain of those, verse 24, who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. So these men of their company, perhaps speaking of Peter and John, went to the tomb. Maybe more appropriately put, they raced to the tomb. Remember that? John's account. But his body they did not find. These two men heard the reports, but they're still ready to call it quits. They're still prepared to walk away from it all. How could they not take the reports on one hand, put the third day element with it, And take what the prophets had said about this Christ. How could they not see it? Well, before we start pointing fingers, how is it that some of you have yet to see it? Listen to the text. After listening to their explanation of the things that had happened, Jesus speaks. 
O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded, he explained to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. What's the problem here with the men on the road to Emmaus? According to Jesus, they are slow of heart to believe. They're slow of heart to believe. To believe what? In all that the prophets have spoken. The issue here, church, is belief. Belief. The men knew the facts surrounding the recent days. They had heard the reports. And yet to them, the horn had sounded. The game was over. They were walking away. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus explains his identity to them. How does he do it? The same way you and I ought to be doing it. Using the scriptures. Using the scriptures. Notice that Jesus refers to himself as the Christ. Ought not the Christ. Remember the two men labeled him as a prophet. Which is true. But Jesus says here, ought not the Christ. To have suffered these things. And enter into his glory. The men walked away because Jesus died on that cross. And to them, that death was final. Jesus is calling their attention, and I believe in many ways calling your attention, to the glorious purpose and power of the cross. The scriptures spoke of such a cross, and Jesus, no doubt, unwraps the meaning of the cross and attaches to it the events of that morning as they're walking along the road. Guys, this is no time to be walking away. Death, let me tell you something, guys. Death is not the end. Don't allow your hopes of what I'm supposed to be doing to override the truth of the scriptures. Don't walk away. I want you to know the power of the cross, guys. Just hear him having this conversation. I want you to see what my word has to say about the cross. I want you to see what my word has to say about the fact that I was buried. I want you to see what the word has to say about my resurrection. It's true. Believe what I say. Oh, it would have been a joy to have been there. To have heard that conversation. Look at what follows. Verses 28 to 32. The encounter. Their eyes were opened. Then they drew near to the village where they were going. Now, now stop right here. Again, reading the text, asking questions, thinking through what's going on. A seven-mile journey is about to end. They didn't have a vehicle. They weren't driving in their cars. They're walking along the road. Now, seven miles is a good little pace to walk. But now they're coming to the end of their journey. What were they doing on their journey. I believe a bulk of the journey was spent with Jesus explaining to them the scriptures. Have you ever been involved in something where it's been like it's something you've enjoyed and, and, and there comes a time where you, where you look back, wow, I didn't even know that time passed by so quickly. Seven miles is a long journey, but I imagine the time went by very quickly. As they drew near to the village, They invite Jesus to join them. 
Verse 29 says that they constrained him to stay with them. Leads me to believe they liked this stranger. This stranger was someone they were welcoming in to stay with them. If they didn't care for this guy, they would have not invited him. I believe the text kind of helps us see that they enjoyed, they liked getting a taste of what this stranger was sharing with them. So he comes in. It came to pass as he sat at the table with them that he took bread, blessed it, and broke it, and gave it to them. That sounds awfully familiar, doesn't it? He took bread, blessed it, and broke it, and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they knew him. Here's the encounter. They knew him. And he vanished from their sight. Go back to verse 16. But their eyes were restrained so that they did not know him. Now verse 31. In the midst of breaking bread together, their eyes were opened and they knew him. The man who had been a stranger is no longer a stranger to them, but he's gone. He vanished from their sight. Why? After revealing himself to them, why does he disappear? The text doesn't necessarily say specifically. But I can't help wonder on this one. These two men had been dealing with what? Unbelief. That's what they've been dealing with. Oh, slow of heart to believe. They knew the facts. They'd heard the reports. But they didn't believe what the scriptures had to say. It seems that their journey to Emmaus had a lot to do with how they viewed the cross of Jesus Christ. But what would they do once they realized that Jesus was the one speaking to them? Would that simply be just another fact to dismiss? I wonder if Jesus leaving would be an opportunity for these men to walk by faith and not by sight. Are you going to walk by faith trusting me? Placing your hope in me? Are you going to put your belief into motion? He vanished from their sight. Now look at what they said to one another after they encountered Jesus. Did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us on the road and while he opened the scriptures to us? So they're talking, they're conversing about how they felt back on the road. And there was something going on there. There was a stirring happening. My heart was just aching and longing. And it's like there was something happening in the midst of what he was telling us. No doubt, that's no, no wonder they invited him in, right? They wanted him to say something. There was something about what he had to say. Church, it's important that we get this. When you encounter this Jesus, the Christ, your heart's going to be in it. Your heart is going to be in it. There's going to be something different. The evidence of a changed heart is manifested. It's obvious to others looking on. You see, the gospel is rooted in a right understanding of the cross, in a right understanding of the empty tomb. We see at the end of John's gospel, this wonderful passage in John 20, 31. He says, these are written, all these words here in his gospel. These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that believing, you may have life in his name. Jesus in John, God's gospel talks about what kind of life that is. He came to give to you. He came to give to you abundant life. So their encounter with Jesus, albeit ever so brief... Did it make a difference? 
What's the text say? Keep looking. We're finishing up here. Verse 33. The journey back to Jerusalem. So they rose up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem. Now wait, stop, pause. Remember they just, in the text, it says that they were encouraging Jesus to stay with him because the day was far spent. The day was about over. Oh, but the text now says because after they realized who Jesus was, that they rose up immediately. They rose up immediately. You see, when Jesus gets a hold of you, it doesn't matter what time of day it is. It doesn't matter whether it's dark outside and i got to make a seven-mile journey back to Jerusalem. I'm excited to tell other people the good news message of Jesus Christ. And so I'm going to go to great lengths to make sure the word gets out. These guys didn't sleep on it and wake up the next morning and travel. They left immediately. They found the eleven. Anything different on this journey from Emmaus to Jerusalem, you think? You know, I wonder if they traveled the same road. I'm, I'm assuming they probably did. I don't know that, but I'm assuming they did. Traveled the same road back to Jerusalem. On that same road where unbelief and dashed hopes were found. Now, having believed, we're anticipating a return back to Jerusalem. They couldn't wait to tell others the good news of their encounter with Jesus. I tend to think that they arrived back in Jerusalem much faster than it took for them to go from Jerusalem to Emmaus. One of of my boys last night, we were talking about the text, and one of them said they probably ran, Dad. And you know what? They might have. Might have been another Peter and John racing back to Jerusalem. To tell the news. They couldn't wait. They couldn't wait to tell the news of the resurrection. He is alive. He is risen. You know, church, some of you may be familiar with the words of a song that speaks to this account. Emmaus. And the chorus, I love the chorus because the chorus fits perfectly with what the text says. It also draws some wonderful application. For each of us. Somewhere between where you are and Emmaus. A stranger wants to come and walk with you. Somewhere along the way your heart will be burning. Drawn into the holy flame of truth. Right now he may be a stranger to you. What will he be when your journey's through? Somewhere between where you are and Emmaus. The Savior wants to walk with you. That line, right now he may be a stranger to you. What will he be when your journey's through? Let me remind you this morning in the words of Paul, Corinthians chapter 15, a summary of the gospel, if you will, in two verses. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And that he was buried. And that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Put your hope in him. Trust him as your savior. Church, is, is he going to be the one? Is he going to be the hope upon which you stand? 
the hope upon whom you can run. The one solid anchor kind of hope that supports all other living hopes and still survives when those hopes die. We serve a risen Savior, church. Hope in the Lord. Trust Him for all things. Let's pray. Oh, Father, this is a, such a wonderful word, and we give you praise, Lord, for providing, preserving this word for us. Thank you for this journey of the road to Emmaus, these two men. Thank you for the lessons learned. I pray, Father, we would not just though learn the lessons, but we would, as your word says, take what we hear and put them into practice, that we would not simply be hearers, but doers of your word. Father, for some today, Jesus may truly be a stranger to them. I pray today as the word was opened and explained. Father, you have done some work, some groundwork perhaps on the heart. You've opened the window to be able to help them see, to open their eyes to see, to open their ears to hear. That they might embrace this wonderful truth of who Jesus is. Father, on this day when we celebrate a resurrection, the resurrected Christ, the one who died on the cross, the one who was buried and the one who was raised. Father, I'm reminded of our union with Christ and how if we are Die, if we've died with Christ and we've been buried with Christ, the scripture says that we are also, we've also been raised with Christ to, for a purpose, to walk in newness of life. May we walk that way. And may those who don't know this stranger in the text, may we who do know, may we be ones just like those men going from Emmaus back to Jerusalem. May we go back with joy with great anticipation. May we find people who we know, we know lots of people who are lost and don't know this person named Jesus. They don't have this hope in Jesus. May we be willing and desirous to share this wonderful news, this gospel, this good news message of Jesus. Thank you for your word. I pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.